Hello. Uh, welcome to RUF. My name is Simon Stokes, and I'm the campus minister here. Uh, and if there's anything that I can do for y'all, uh, please let me know. Don't hesitate um, to ask me or um, to reach out to either Taylor or Aaron or anyone you see here that looks like they kind of know what they're doing. Um, but we are a campus ministry that exists for itself. It exists to love and serve this campus. And um, so, yeah, that's what we do here. We're here to help and serve y'all. So, that being said, um, let me pray for us. And especially as I pray, um, we pray all the time in RUF. Um, I always pray before I start a sermon and things like that. But I think especially um, in light of uh, just the, I don't know, the, the terrible thing that happened to Delaney Robinson and the, the rape that was kind of came out with that today, I want to pray especially for her um, tonight. Um, so often we can feel like we live in a bubble where we're safe um, and where bad things don't happen at UNC. And this just kind of shows us um, that sin is everywhere. And sin is a terrible thing, and God hates sin. And that the res- right response to that is to call out to God and to ask God to heal, to forgive, to mend, to put the world back together. And that, we think that's what he's doing through Jesus. So I want to pray especially for Delaney and for ourselves tonight, um, our hearts, wherever they are. So let me pray for us and we'll get started. Um, Lord, there is uh, so much hurt in this world. There's so much pain in it. There's so many tears in it. Um, Lord, so many of us have stories that are just rife with hurt, of loss and of pain, um, of betrayal. And uh, Lord, we pray especially for Delaney Robinson tonight as uh, she's been hurt in some really significant ways. Um, Lord, we pray that you would be with her, pray that you would comfort her. Lord, we pray that uh, you would heal her. God, we pray for justice in this. Lord, we pray um, that you would be at work in this. We see something like this, we hear about something like this, and we ask, how long, O Lord? Lord, how long, Lord Jesus, until you restore the world? Until you make it a place where nothing bad happens again, where rape is gone, where murder is gone, where death is gone, where the dissolution of friendships is gone. Lord Jesus, we pray you'd work in this. We pray you'd work in her. We pray you'd work in her assailant. We pray that you'd work in our own hearts um, to know, to rest, to trust, to be healed in you. Uh, God, there's no real healing apart from that. So help us to know and rest in that tonight. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, yeah, so here in RDF, uh we do care a lot about the campus and we do care a lot about what's going on in the world as well. And it's going to be a hard right turn. Um, that being said, uh, I saw a newspaper story recently about a Florida couple, and it said uh, something that really struck me, and I just had to, to read it tonight. Uh, it says this, Florida couple arrested for selling tickets to heaven. A couple in Florida, that's right, a couple in Florida, Tito and Amanda Watts, were arrested a few days ago, I don't know how long ago this was, for selling golden tickets to heaven to hundreds of people. They sold the tickets on the street for $99.99, smart, keep it under 100 per ticket, (laughs) told buyers the tickets were made from solid gold, and that each ticket reserved the buyer a spot in heaven. Simply resent the ticket at the pearly gates, and you're in. I don't see what could be easier. Tito Watts said in his police statement, I don't care what the police say. The tickets are solid gold, and it was Jesus who gave them to me behind the KFC, and told me to tell... (laughs) That's where he's been all this time. And (laughs) told... 
and told me to tell them so that I could get, sell them so I could get some money to go to outer space. I met an alien named Stevie who said if I got the cash together, he would take me and my wife on his flying saucer to his planet that is made entirely of drugs. You should arrest Jesus because he's the one who gave me the golden tickets. I'm willing to wear a wire and set Jesus up. And <laughs> That's right. In her, yeah. in her police statement, Amanda Watts said, We just wanted to leave Earth and go to space and do drugs. I did not do anything. Tito sold the golden tickets to heaven. I just watched. <laughs> police said they confiscated over $10,000 in cash, drug paraphernalia, and a baby alligator. <laughs> Thanks, Florida. <laughs> That's right. Um, <laughs> you know, you can hear you can hear a story like that. You can read a story like that. And it can sound totally crazy. Though, as far as I know, it really did happen. But it is not that far away from the way that we have a tendency to sometimes approach God. That Jesus, you give me what I want. You give me my golden ticket. You give me the thing that I need. And if not, I'm just gonna I'm gonna kick you to the curb. I'm gonna wear a wire, <laughs> right? And sell you out behind the KFC. <laughs> I want Jesus to give me the benefits that he says he provides. And that can be a certain image that we have, uh, or that we would like to have of ourselves, or a certain feeling that we'd like to maintain, a certainty in the afterlife, maybe, a certain moral or intellectual superiority that we could kind of hold over other people. But when you see the invisible God made visible, as the gospel's claim has happened in Jesus, what do you see that he gives people? What is he after? What does he give to very moral-seeming people? And what does he give to very immoral-seeming people? How does God actually deal with us? And what do we need to give to him for him to deal with us well? So tonight, I want to ask two questions. Two questions here. What does this story have to say about our tendency to deal with God? And what does it say about the way that God deals with us? What does it say about our tendency to deal with God? And what does it say about God's tendency to deal with us? So let's set the scene here. Let's set the scene because this is really important for what's going on. It says, one of the Pharisees asked him to go and eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. Like, don't think of this as like a dinner party that you or I would throw. At this time and place, when you had a distinguished person over for dinner, it wasn't just the two of you. Like, the poor of the town would be there as well, kind of silently hanging around the edges, seeing what you gave them from your table. Um, It was sort of this sign of the community as you gave food to the poor that you're this gracious, hospitable person. Like, think of this more as like a community banquet with Jesus as the main guest. Like, that's how you should think of it. But notice what's not being done here. No feet are being washed. No kisses being given. Jesus has to sit himself down. It would be like if your parents threw a really nice dinner party, and when they invited this person, this very distinguished guest over, and they showed up, they wouldn't open the door for them. They wouldn't greet them. They wouldn't ask them how they're doing. They would make this person kind of wander through the house find their own food, seat themselves, and all while this is kind of being televised on the local news station. Like, it is an unfathomably rude thing that this man is doing to Jesus. And why are they doing it? To try to intimidate and insult him. Essentially trying to show who this young rabbi, who's who's boss? Like, who is the person that's in charge here? Alright, so hold that in your mind. Hold in your mind. And behold, a woman of the city who is a sinner... When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, anointing them with this ointment. Imagine you're at this very public dinner party, and this woman steps out of the shadows against the wall. 
And she's one of the town prostitutes. That's what it kind of means here. It's a woman of the city who's a sinner. It's kind of a shorthand for that. So she's a town prostitute, which morally, socially, economically, makes her the absolute bottom of the social ladder. In some of the people's eyes, she's barely a person. But it's clear that from what she does, she's heard Jesus preaching the gospel of God's grace, and she's believed and she's come to see Jesus. And what she sees shocks her. That the most distinguished people in town have invited Jesus so they can do the social equivalent of slapping him in the face. She's horrified by this, so she steps in and she honors Jesus in the way these men don't do. They're laughing at him. She's weeping over him. They've not bothered to wash his feet, a common courtesy. She wets his feet, the dirtiest part of him, with her tears. She dries them with her hair. She kisses them. She does something extravagant. You and I don't want to kiss each other's feet, right? That, for us, is kind of gross. But, and for culturally, for us, it's, feet are not that big of a deal. Here, they're considered super gross. It's very, very nasty. Remember, she's a prostitute, too. This is before kind of uh, thigh-high stripper boots. The way that a woman, kind of before that, way before that, the way that a woman would let potential customers know that she's a prostitute is that she would wear a lot of very strong, very expensive perfume so that people could smell her from a distance. She's taking that perfume and she's anointing Jesus' feet with it. It's the most expensive thing she owns. And it's crucial to her public identity and the way that she makes a living. And she's dumping it on the dirtiest part of him. It'd be like if you played basketball for UNC and you met Jesus in the dead of winter and to keep him warm you took all of your jerseys, your shoes, your athletic equipment and you set it on fire so that Jesus could stay warm. This is an extravagant gesture of her pouring her identity on the dirtiest part of Jesus. And whenever you read the Gospels, y'all, it's super helpful to ask the question, what were the people in this room expecting Jesus to do? Like, what did they think he was going to do? Everyone here is expecting Jesus to see her and see this extravagant gesture and for him to reject her. Like, from Simon's response, you can tell this whole dinner has been a test and that Jesus has failed. If this man were a prophet, he would know who this woman was. Because what's their expectation? That Jesus would say, stop, like this is nasty, stop. Or if you're so grateful for God's forgiveness, go to the temple, offer thanks, don't thank me, I'm just a humble prophet, doing my job, thank God. He doesn't do that. Why not? A couple of reasons here. One, he knows that rejecting her would devastate her, and so he accepts her. Two, she's the only person in the room who's feeling and coming into his rejection. They snubbed him. They tried to intimidate him. She does her best at incredible risk to oppose the strongest men in town and to compensate for their rudeness. She's entering into Jesus' suffering and he feels that. So he allows her to enter in with him, receive her in this way, and he honors her as as having something worthy to give to him. And third, and this is a kicker right here, by offering her thanks to Jesus instead of going to the temple, she's saying the right place to give thanks to God for forgiveness is Jesus. That an uneducated prostitute sees this and falls at his feet when the men in the town don't is a big deal. Like in case you were wondering, this is a clear example of the Bible dignifying women by giving this woman prize of place over the men in the room. At this point, is now, this is now the weirdest dinner party you've ever been to. 
But wait, it gets even a little bit weirder. So it says, Jesus reading his mind, because Simon thinks if this guy knew it were a prophet, he would know who this one was. He thinks that. Jesus reading his mind turns to him and says, I have something to say to you. This is going to sting. A certain money lender has two debtors. One owes 500 denarii, think $40,000. The other owes 50 denarii, about $4,000 for that time. When they couldn't pay, he cancels the debt of both. Which of them will love him more? Simon answers, the one I suppose for me cancel a larger debt. And he says, you've judged rightly. Then turning towards the woman, he says to Simon, do you see this woman? Because he hasn't seen her yet. Not really seen her. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. She's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. From the time she come in, she's come in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You not anoint my head with oil. She has anointed my feet, the dirtiest part of me, with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she's loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. What is he saying there? That debt that cannot be repaid but which must be forgiven by God is often used as a picture in Scripture of our sin. The language of debt is just part of sin. That neither of these people, the one with the huge debt, the one with the little debt, can pay or atone for their sin. But the creditor forgives both. And Simon sees that the one for whom he canceled the larger debt is the one who will love him more. That is the first right thing that Simon has done or said in the entire story. And this is why the story is so important for us. Because how do we tend to naturally approach God? We tend to approach God like Simon the Pharisee and try to pay our debts. That we can impose all kinds of laws upon ourselves. Like really the measure of how well I'm doing is if I do some summer project with some ministry. If I avoid the party scene, if I double up on volunteer hours, start being nicer, really buckle down on reading the Bible, become as open-minded as possible, never use a microaggression. I will avoid as much sin as I can and cover the rest of my problems up with being a good outward person. But what was the problem going on inside of Simon? His problem is he's coming to God and saying, the way that I need to deal with you is to avoid as much sin as possible. If I can't, I'll deal with it. And the problem with this is that it's about him. His confession, his compensation, what he's doing, it only works for people who are like him who are decently moral, have a lot going for them, who are probably pretty well educated. They can do the outside stuff. Maybe they'll muddle their way through the inside stuff. Oh, I know I'm kind of selfish sometimes, but I think of myself as a pretty nice person. And that works for a little while. It, it really does. Because it's focused on us, though. It will only take you so far. Like, this is the kid who grew up in the hyper-conservative household where you didn't get to listen to cool music, i.e. rap, or watch <laughs> rated R movies. But you come to Carolina, you do the Christian thing for a year, and then you punt it all when you lose your virginity. This is the person who is never wild, but who always looks down and fumes at another set of people. This is the person who is secretly pretty angry, but never deals with their anger by confronting someone, because God doesn't like it when we're not nice, as though honesty is the opposite of love. And what does it do for people who've committed big flagrant sins of lifestyle, like prostitution, because though that sort of thing never happened around here, because it does, what sort of hope does that way of repentance provide? None. Like, what if you never wanted to keep the rules? Like, what if you've always been a rebel? Like, you didn't want to keep them before, you don't want to keep them now. What if your sin is too scary? 
and too shameful to confess. And you know, on some level, the debt is too great. Like, I can never pay this back. What if it's all on you to do what's right, to be with, right with people and with God? Here's how I think most of us actually live, though. We know on some level that we're doing isn't enough. We live on, under kind of a rain cloud of guilt. We aren't changing the ways that we thought we ought to. We're not growing like we thought we ought to. Our motivation to do the right thing is kind of in the toilet. Because our, our tendency is that our motivation is for how we approach God. Is my fear for the consequences of my decision, my guilt over what I've done, my pride in how well I've managed things. It's me, me, me. But what's the problem with that way of thinking? The problem is that I will take me nowhere. These two attitudes of either punt it all and run or buckle down and work as hard as you can are really two sides of the same coin. Well, it's very strict on the rules. I'm giving up on the rules. It's the same thing. That God is really not for me. I'm going to have to do something to make him like me. Or I can't do anything to make him like me. I'm out of here. But either way, I've got to pay the debts. You know what this feels like for some of us? Have you ever walked into a room like this or gone in, gotten into your car to go to church? And maybe this has been your thought. Maybe it's just been a feeling. But it's been there. Of why am I doing this? Why am I going to sing these songs and try to start doing these things that I don't want to do and not do the things that I do want to do? In fact, when I went abroad or when I first got to Carolina and nobody knew who I was and I could kind of throw off the rules, that's when I felt most like myself. And you're haunted by this sense of being constantly kind of self-critical. I never feel like I live up to God's expectations, to other people's expectations. I don't feel forgiven. And in your head, you've got this mental picture of your ideal self where one day you don't have to hide stuff or one day you'll enjoy doing the religious stuff. But whoever that is is way down the line. And it's definitely not now. And that voice inside of us, God is not really for you. You've got to do this on your own. He's either going to make us a Pharisee. I'm going to be in here day in and day out. I'm going to make you like me. Or it's going to be the anti-Pharisee. Like You will never like me and so I'm out of here. And usually it's a pendulum where we swing back and forth. I've got to be uptight about the things God commands or reject what God says and make up my rules, which are easier to follow. But did you catch what Jesus is saying here at the end of the parable as a source of loving God? What does Jesus say is the way to a real, in-depth, shamelessly exuberant relationship with God? To see how much God has loved you first. To see how much God has loved you first. That it's not on you, beloved. It's on Him. That He pays our debts when we cannot pay them. That there is no one here without debt. There's no one who doesn't deserve to pay. And at the same time, there's no one for whom He will not pick up the tab. The problem with our natural tendencies of thinking is that love is what the law commands. And we can't just follow the rules. Like, God commands... That we follow Him and the rules are that we love Him. But on the other hand, the commands of the law are what love, love fulfills. Like if you love Him, then you'll do what He wants you to do. The commandments are like the railroad track on which the life of God runs. That love empowers that engine, but law guides the direction. Just like when a man and a woman love each other deeply, they don't say, you know, let's just see how far these love feelings are going to take us. They say, let's get married and make this thing real. Feelings are only going to take us so far, but to love you, I've got to make vows that will shape my love. So they stand up in front of a group of people that know them well, love them enough to fly across the country and eat cake, while they uh, hear these two lovebirds pledge their love to one another. 
by saying, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. What's going on there? The vows shape the love. And the love empowers the vows. You put those two things together, you've got yourself a marriage. Right? The real measure of Christianity is how well you understand God's love for you. That He's married Himself to you. If you are one of His people. That you would understand that not just here, but here in your heart. That God loves you with an unbreakable, unending, never failing love. That yes, to love Him is to follow His commandments. But those commandments are empowered by His love. And so the real measure of how well you get Christianity is how much you make of God's forgiveness for you, a sinner, to take up the yoke of discipleship and to follow Jesus will make you more human and not less. That it is, as someone once said, like wings to a bird and sails to a ship. It is what we need most to be human, to have real relationships, to really know God. And it's the thing that you were made for, real relationships and really knowing God. And it's what will send you into the world with strength and with confidence and with bold love. And paradoxically, this is so crazy to us, y'all. This comes by seeing your weakness and your need and your debt before God and then seeing God's love and sufficiency and strength for you in Jesus. That that's where love comes from. And this is actually the means to do great things in God's kingdom. Um, I was watching... This is going to sound so nerdy. I was watching uh, a Ken Burns documentary. Already I've lost your interest (laughs) this summer (laughs) on uh, the Roosevelts. And it's actually, it's pretty fascinating. And in it, though, he talks about Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the president who was uh, over the United States during World War II. And he kind of outlines his life. And Franklin Delano Roosevelt starts off strong, smart, good-looking, coming from an incredible family, is born, like, he is the poster child for born with a silver spoon in his mouth. And he is powerful, but he's always distant. He's not approachable. Until what happens? Until he gets polio, and he's paralyzed below his legs, and suddenly he can't walk. And this man who was super competent, who could do anything, who was incredibly wealthy, incredibly smart, who was just on his way to going places, suddenly can't even stand up and take himself to the bathroom. And he's still all these things. He still has all these things. But now, as he's paralyzed, something crazy happens. That he has this amazing ability to connect with people. That his neediness is what makes him approachable. And strange as it sounds, historians point to him getting polio as a defining reason for why he became president. Because suddenly he's approachable and likable. He learns approachability and intimacy with strangers through his loss and his neediness and his dependence. And the Christian life is the same way. To do great things, to be approachable, to connect with people, neediness is required. Neediness is the way to approach God and others. And you see, for so many of us, our problem is not that we drink too much or that we sleep around or that we're mean or we're brittle or we're proud. Those are not your problem. Those are symptoms of your problem. Our real problem is that we don't know God well and we don't know how much we need Him or how much He loves to give needy people Himself. And I'm so glad that I'm your campus minister because this is me too. Like, this is so me. 
I try so hard to be strong and smart and funny. And usually the best things in my life have been when I've been really needy. They've been really broken. I've needed God. I've needed other people. I think the question this asks us right now is what do you think that God thinks about you? What do you think he thinks about you right now? Because I think that if I'm reading this story right, that he is compassionate and gentle and kind and willing to be embarrassed for you and patient with you, that he doesn't see you as the sum of all of your debt and sin, but as the one who receives his forgiveness and love if you would have it. And that is just so hard for us to get our heads around. Our problem is that we bottle up our mess and our need so that we don't need God. Like, let's look loving and happy and unified, and it will never work. We'll always become self-righteous and arrogant and unhappy. That naturally, we think that Christianity is that we check ourselves into the hospital so we can get treated and leave. But Christianity is checking ourselves into the hospital and never leaving because we always need Jesus. The thing that you need from God is not a new teaching or a more intensive program of self-improvement or a better emotional state. The thing that you need from God is God. Whether you're the Pharisee who doesn't understand their need but who's getting there, or you're the prostitute who weeps at her need, what you need is for Jesus to meet you where you're at and to deal with you honestly and kindly. I mean, think about how this shapes our view of why we're here. Are we here about, for all the ways that we don't make the grade and we measure, don't measure up and so we can come in here and kind of balance the scales? Because that is a recipe to, for, to live life in a pressure cooker and for secret addictions and on-the-side hookups and quietly limping through an eating disorder. That eventually you will try, you will try this and you'll give up on it and you'll see where life takes you. Or is the reason you're here so you can be reminded that Jesus pays your debts and that he loves you and that he's for you? Is Christianity about all the things that you need to do before God? Or is it about all the things that God has needed to do for you through Jesus? Because my hope is that as you read through the gospel this semester is that we see that Jesus is the gospel. That in Jesus we see what God is actually like. That in his very person he is good news. And if we didn't have stories like this in the Gospels, we would never guess that the way that he approaches people is like this. Because it's just so counterintuitive the way we think about ourselves. But the reality of the supernatural is that in Jesus, we see the open heart of God. The deepest, truest, most self-giving expression of who God is. Living the life we couldn't live. Dying the death we should have died. To pay our debts and to make us rich in God's love. And what is the price that he requires of us? Nothing. All we need is our debt. All that he requires is we come to him with that debt. The reason that we get bored with Christianity and Jesus is not because the Bible is hard to read and the talks don't have enough pop cultural references. That for those of us who feel cold to this stuff, your problem is that you don't see your debt. And because you have a little debt, you have a little Jesus. Simon here bottles up his mess to avoid God. This woman pours out her mess and meets him. He comes to God hiding. She comes to God as she really is. And how does Jesus respond? What is God actually like? Your sins are forgiven. I will be near you. I will take a kiss from the lips that all the other lips have kissed. She's not aiming at being good or sacrificial or nice. She's aiming at Jesus. 
And so she becomes those things. Look, if you're bottling up your mess, if you're trying to get your life together so you can make an impact for Jesus, you've got it wrong. You're pointing people to yourself. When our goal is to become people who are put together, we're saying to everyone around us, what you need is me. But what this woman understands, what this very religious man does not, is that Jesus is saying to them, what you need is me. Your goal as a Christian is to run to the feet of Jesus. If you want to be a good witness, then witness how much you need Jesus. I mean, think about how this affects our community. That being a mess at the feet of Jesus means that we actually have to be a mess with one another. That if you want to be weirdly, absurdly, strangely Christian, if you don't want to just offer hope, but no hope for yourself, and your struggles and your sin, then be a mess with one another on this campus at the feet of Jesus. Like, confess your sins to one another. Pray for real things with one another. When someone asks you how you're doing, actually tell them. And do it consistently. Like, what if RUF was that kind of community? What if we weren't just people who needed to fix other folks, but we were people who needed to be healed and fixed ourselves? This story just begs the question of how much do you make of God's forgiveness for you, a sinner? Does God's love for you in Jesus free you to be a mess and forget about yourself and what other people think of you? It should. It's a source of love. It's a source of freedom. It's wings for a bird. It's sails for a ship. It's life and hope. And so I'll end with this. I read a story recently of a uh, family of Chinese immigrants. And the father and the family worked like 15 hours a day almost every day in a Chinese restaurant to make ends meet. And he's busy, he's gone all the time. And as immigrants, uh, his and his wife's first priority is to help their oldest son learn how to speak English, because he's in America. And they do, they do a really good job of that. He grows up in America, he only knows America as his country, he only speaks English, he speaks no Chinese. He is as American as kind of anyone else who ever grew up here. But there's a problem. His dad never learned English. And it's impossible for the two of them to communicate beyond even kind of the most basic stuff. Like, do you feel okay? Are you enough to eat? Like, that's it. And his Chinese dad, who only speaks Chinese, his American son, who doesn't speak any Chinese, like, you can see where that would be tough. The son, who only speaks English, grows up wondering, what does my dad think of me? Does he like me? Does he actually care about me? Am I his child or am I like this like robot person who has to limp through life, make good grades, achieve so I can have a quiet but sort of tolerable relationship with my dad? Until what happens? His dad has to move back to China suddenly. And as he's moving, he writes his letter a son. Or he writes his son a letter. Sorry. Explaining in Chinese how much he loves him. And how hard it is for him for them to be apart. And everything that he's done, all the long hours he's worked, all the years he's spent in this restaurant have been for him so he could have a life in America. And as his son has someone translate this for him, and he starts to read it, what happens when he sees his dad's love? He weeps. And his heart comes alive to his father. And all those fears which have seemed so real and so powerful and so staggering just melt. And for people like us who often wonder, what does God think about me? Is he mad with me? Is he sad with me? Is he just indifferent? Because guys like you, Simon, are telling me that I need to spend a lot of time with him. 
I need to care about the things that he cares about. I need to love people that are hard to love. I need to be willing to be messy. Like, I'm sitting here and wondering, is it worth it? For people who wonder, what is God actually like? What does he actually feel about me and my loneliness and my disappointments, my hopes and my dreams? Do you know what the answer is? It's Jesus. That Jesus is God's letter to you. That in him all of our fears melt. In him our hearts that are cold to this stuff and want to just get stuff done, they melt and they rest. And that is for anyone that will turn to him. If you are a Christian, that is already yours. Like Jesus loves to give good things to sinners. Jesus is all about meeting people in their sin and their brokenness and their darkness. He loves that. He loves those people. He loves people like us who have to be strong. He doesn't just provide those things from a distance and pat us on the head, but He offers us Himself. He offers us His love. He offers us His kindness. And all we have to give is, his, is our need. And that's my offer to you tonight. That's my hope for you tonight in Him. Let me pray for us. Father, thank You um, that You give us everything that we need, everything that we hope for in Jesus. Lord, that You love us, that You heal us, that You make us new in Him. Lord, I pray that He would be our way. I pray that He would be our truth. I pray that He would be our life. Lord, that He would help, help us to hope when things seem hopeless. Lord, that He would be our light in darkness. Lord, I pray that He would be our love when we feel loveless. In His name we pray. Amen.